So the first art that was inspired by Jesus was not art in great cathedrals. It was not art on stained glass. Believe it or not, it was not even a bunch of people painting sheep on canvas and hanging them around the sanctuary. That was not the first art that was inspired by Jesus. The first art was actually in catacombs, hidden tombs, because the early church had to meet in hidden places because of persecution in Rome. They had to meet underground. In fact, if you've heard that phrase, the underground church, that is where that phrase came from. And do you know which Old Testament figure was etched on the walls of catacombs more than any other? It was not David, the great king, not Abraham, the father of Israel. It was also not Moses, the lawgiver. The person who was etched on the walls of the catacombs most often was Jonah. Jonah, who we're studying this month. He was everywhere on those walls, in part because the early church saw the satire in this story. They got the joke. They knew that just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days, that deliverance was coming for them too, that resurrection was coming, that the third day was coming. They knew that Jesus was all over this comical, holy high book of Jonah, and it inspired the first art in the early church. One of the problems that we have when we come to the book of Jonah is we think we know the story, but very often we don't actually know the story. This week, Tim and I uh, were just quizzing our kids about the story of Jonah, and just to illustrate for you how we kind of get mixed up on the story of Jonah, I want you to hear from my eight-year-old son, on what is the story of Jonah all about. This is Russell. Let's take a look. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jonah. He listened to God. He told people about God. One time, God said, go to Israel and learn about God. (laughs) And then, like, in 40 days, I'll flood the place. Jonah's like... (laughs) So, and then, he's like, he went to... He was like, no, I don't want to. He tried to hid by God. He went to his, his um, friend's shop, tried there, couldn't. <laughs> then he's like, bye, guys. I have to go on a super long journey to go to a boat. He went to a boat, went there, and was like, why'd you? And then there were the people on the boat worshipped the shutter guy. He's like, why'd you worship him? Why not the holy God? So they're like, how could one God make the whole world? They're like, huh, didn't I? And and then a big storm happened, and he's like, throw me overboard. The storm will stop. And then they threw him overboard, and then they worshipped the holy God. Jonah got swallowed by a whale. And then, uh, wait, wait, let me think. (laughs) And then, and then... Three days passed. Every day he prayed. There's no food or anything. And then on the third day, God spoke to him and said, Jonah, I'll give you one more chance before I flood the place. He And then he asked um, Jonah, 
he, he the whale spit him out onto shore. He went to Bethlehem and t talked about God. The end. <laughs> Could you do any better? <laughs> Usually when we talk about this story, most people will say, oh yeah, that's the story about Jonah and the whale. Except the word whale is never mentioned in the story. It would be more accurate for us to say, this is the story about Jonah and the great fish. And we'll talk more about why that would be more accurate in just a minute. But at the beginning of the story, by way of review, the word of the, uh, the, word of the Lord comes to Jonah tells him to go to the city of Nineveh and tell the people about God's love. Jonah doesn't want to do that because that nation, those people, are the enemies of Israel. So instead, he gets on a ship going the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. God sends a storm. The ship is going down. Jonah says, throw me over the side. And once those pagan sailors throw him over the side, the sea becomes calm. The storm is over. So the pagan sailors convert and begin worshiping the God of Israel. Jonah goes over the side of the boat. The storm stops. And then Jonah is sinking into the sea. But the story says the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, now, author and pastor John Ortberg talks about this phrase, appoints, that God appoints the great fish. And he points out that the word appointed could be translated commissioned. So it's like a governing word. In the ancient world, it would have been like a king is going to appoint an ambassador or commission a messenger. So it would be something like this. Like God says to the fish, hey, fish, I have a job for you. And the fish says, yes, Lord, I'm listening. And God says, I want you to go swallow this guy. Now, very important. Directions will be given along the way, but swallow, don't chew the guy. And we're going to have him spit up. So it's like God is appointing. It's like God is commissioning. God is, and the fish is saying, yes, Lord, what should I do? Such an odd story, isn't it? Such an odd story. There is one word associated with God throughout the book of Jonah, and that word is great. Great. The Bible says God sends a great wind produces a great storm. The sailors are converted through a great fear. God appoints not a whale, but a fish. And what kind of fish is it? It's a great fish. Because God is doing something great in this story. So the number one word associated with God in the book of Jonah is the word great. Okay, the number one word associated with Jonah in the story, and Tim mentioned this if you have been with us in weeks past, is the word down. Jonah keeps going down. The main word associated with him is down. God says go to Nineveh. He instead, Jonah instead, goes down to the port of Joppa. He gets on a ship headed down to Tarshish. When he's on that ship, he goes down into the boat and falls asleep. Then when he's thrown overboard, he goes down into the stormy sea. And then, as we all know, he soon goes down into the fish. So God, great. Jonah, going down. Now, we have to look at the story like an Israelite would have. We have to 
think about how would a Hebrew Israelite read this story, understand this story, what would they see in this story? And in the mind of the Israelites, you cannot get any lower than the sea. The sea is the place of great fear, great terror. It's the place of death. So when Jonah is in the fish and he's going down in the sea, this is like as bad as it gets in the mind of an Israelite. And what does Jonah do there? He prays. Chapter 2, he prays from inside the fish. He's gone down, he prays. Now you think, like, why did he do that? And I just can't, can't help but think, like, what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do if you're inside a fish? Like, it is as desperate as it can be. It is as low as it can be. And sometimes I wonder if, is it hard to pray because we have so much else to do? Like, there's so many screens, so many distractions. I am introducing noise into my life so often. But Jonah, in the belly of the great fish, has nothing else to do. And so he prays. The whole entire first chapter of this story is about human action. So Jonah makes plans. Jonah has resources. Jonah is going places. And then his plans and his resources and his going places turn out disastrous and a storm hits. And Jonah's story grinds to a halt and then chapter two, no action. Just prayer. Jonah cries out to God and God delivers him. When does God deliver him? on the third day. Now, we've talked about this before. In the scriptures, the third day is kind of a big day in Bible stories. When there was like a dramatic rescue on the part of God, it often happened on the third day. So the reader, again, thinking like, how would an Israelite read this Hebrew mindset? A reader might expect God to rescue Jonah very dramatically like in times past, like maybe they would think like a visitation from an angel, like the angel Gabriel is going to come and deliver Jonah. Maybe send like a chariot of fire, maybe beam him up in the middle of his prayer. But why this book is so dripping with satire, why it is so funny, is that is not how it works, not in this story. And we left Jonah last week in Jonah 2. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We're meant to laugh. The fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. See, in Israel's eyes, Jonah's predicament is as bad as it gets. Ending up in the heart of the sea, the depths of the grave, going down, down, down. And it turns out in this story, when human beings are going down, God is up to something great. Jonah's going down. God is up to something great. Because here's the thing. From God's perspective, the sea, death, the grave, Sheol, not a problem. From God's perspective, the thing they feared most, the sea, that terror, that death, that place, not a problem. 
in a similar way today. It's like, think of all the things we fear. Abandonment, isolation, rejection, divorce, cancer, all the things, not a problem to God. Because God is great and he can appoint a fish that can vomit up a rescue. It's like God keeps showing up as great in this story. And stiff-necked people, rebellious people, not a problem to God. God can appoint a fish. And that fish can spit up a total change. The point being, God can use anything he wants. Even a fish even a fish vomiting, to change the trajectory of this story. Now, after Jonah is spit up on shore, here's what we read next. And now this is the second half of the book. So he's spit up on shore, and then the scriptures say, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to her the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and set out for Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah went a day's journey into the city and then called out, In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, stripped off his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. And he cried out and issued a decree in Nineveh on the authority of the king and nobles, saying, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let no man or beast, no herd or flock taste anything. Let them not graze or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out with fervor to God. Let every person forsake his evil way and the violence that he plans toward others. Who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God examined their deeds, how they forsook their evil ways, he renounced the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not carry it out. Most people have heard the story of Jonah. We tend to think it ends either when he got spit up on shore or right here. Jonah's a missionary. He goes, he preaches, the people repent. This is a story about world missions. This is not, however, the end of this story. This is not, however, the main point of this story. The real lesson of this book comes after all these events. In fact, of all the books in the Bible, Jonah is probably the most unexpected and overlooked final chapters of any book in the Bible. Now, a reminder from the last couple weeks, Nineveh is located in Assyria. Assyria was the greatest power in the world at that time, and it was the cruelest. It was, by everybody's definition, a terrorist nation. It's understandable why Jonah did not want to preach in Nineveh. His enemies in Assyria, in the, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Yet, when he goes and preaches, the people repent. There's massive repentance. It's amazing 
And so God then does not destroy the city. Okay, just to try to put this in perspective for us, just think of like modern day examples that you see come across your news feed. Perhaps you saw on December 27th, just like most of us are still celebrating Christmas. And did you see ISIS released a video of 11 Christians being executed? Did you see that in Nigeria? Brutality, brutal. Now, in the face of evil, when you see stories of terrorism, execution of people, things like that, how do you want to respond? How do you feel? That is how Jonah likely felt. The Assyrians were known for vile things, horrible crimes. It only seems natural that Jonah would be angry. He would want justice. He would want revenge. It's certainly true today. Like, our world in the face of evil tells us to be afraid, to seek vengeance. Most of what the air we're swimming in would say reconciliation is beyond hope. So we ought to hate our enemies. It's difficult today, and same would have been true for Jonah, it is difficult to not be like infected with that same spirit of vengeance and hate and outrage and prejudice. Now, we would expect here in chapter 3 that that would be the end, like that it would be a triumphant note. Jonah has just preached to the terrorist nation, and they turn to God. You would expect, like, the next sentence in the Bible would be something like, so Jonah returned to his homeland rejoicing as he went. But that is not what happens. Instead, the people repent, and the Bible says this. But what God did was so terrible to Jonah that he burned with anger. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I spoke of when I was still in my homeland? That is why I fled with haste to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, very patient and abounding in steadfast love, and who also renounces plans for bringing disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For to me, death is better than life. And the Lord said, is it good for you to burn with such anger? Jonah is so angry that his enemies have repented. He is so angry about that that he wants to die. Now let me ask you, if you are an artist here in Denver and you are chosen to go to the Cherry Creek Arts Fest, and you're at the festival, and you show your art, your art, and you win first prize. Are you furious with rage and wanting to die after that moment? Or if you're like a musician, and you go to Carnegie Hall, and you do a performance, and you get a standing ovation by the whole room, are you irate? Jonah has just preached to the most difficult audience of his life, 
and they've responded positively. And he is furious. What is going on here? Why would he melt down in anger? Jonah's anger and the fact that he wants to die reveal the deepest commitments of his heart. Jonah's real problem was at a deep heart level. Because when his enemies repented, he lost something that had replaced God in his life. He had lost, in that moment, the main source of his joy, purpose, meaning, his greatest love. Jonah had a relationship with God, but there was something that he valued more than his relationship with God. And his anger shows he's willing to discard his relationship with God if he doesn't get this thing that's even more important to him. See, whenever you and I say, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X, whatever X is, that's your true bottom line. That's your highest love. Like, that is your real God. That's the thing that you really trust in, you actually rest in. And what Jonah is saying here is Jonah is saying to God, I have no source of meaning if my enemies are not crushed. Like the bottom line, so you could say, what's the bottom line for Jonah? What's his ultimate allegiance? In a nutshell, it's nationalism. Like it is his commitment to national security. Like that has become more important to him than God's kingdom. So Nineveh repenting, that was pleasing to God. But it was threatening to Israel's national security, to Israel's national interests. So Jonah's got to choose, like the will of God or the political fortunes of Israel. And when forced to choose, he wants the fortunes of Israel over the will of God. Now, again, you can look at the story and say, of course, this is a terrorist nation. They're doing terrible things. This is enemies of Israel. You can look at this and say, of course, anybody would be anxious about a serious survival. Anybody would have been at that time. But Jonah didn't take that anxiety to God as many of the writers of the Psalms did with their anxiety related to their enemies. He did not do that. When it came right down to it, if Jonah had to choose between the security of Israel and the loyalty towards God, he's ready to push God away. Now that is not just like healthy patriotism. That is not just a healthy concern and love for one's people and country. That is a deification of country. I mean... Loving your country, loving your people, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. 
But just like anything that we love, it can become inordinate. It can become like any other love, an idol. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But if love for your country's interests leads you to exploit people, or in this case, to root for an entire class of people to be destroyed, to not care that they're spiritually lost, then actually your love of nation has trumped your love of God. That is what God calls idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. It's actually the main point of this little book. When followers of Jesus care more about their own interests and security than the souls of others, we are committing the sin of Jonah. If we value, as Jonah did, the economic and military flourishing of our country over the good of the human race and the work of God in the world, we're sinning like Jonah. If your identity is more rooted in your race and your nationality than in being children of God, it's just inconsistent with God's heart for all people, all nations, everywhere. So Jonah's, he has a good love for his people. That's not a bad thing. He has a good love for his country. That's not a bad thing. But it has become inordinate. It is too great. It is his real God. Tim Keller, author and pastor, wrote an excellent little book called The Prodigal Prophet, all about this book. And he says these words, racial pride can become racism. National pride can become an idol. Patriotism can become imperialism. There is such a huge challenge for all of us in this little book. It's the challenge of where is my ultimate allegiance? Where do you pledge your ultimate allegiance? And if you are a follower of God in the way of Jesus, then you live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The most important thing about your identity is actually not your nationality. It is actually not your race, as important as those things may be. It is also not your Enneagram number or your Myers-Briggs type or your education. The most important thing about your identity as a follower of God in the way of Jesus, it's not what you have or what you do or who you know. The most important thing about your identity is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That is the truest, most important thing about you. That Christ has died for you and resides in you. That you live in Christ and Christ lives in you. That's the most important thing about you. And it ought to shape all the values, all the things that we care about. The sin of Jonah is really the sin of idolatry. And specifically, it's the sin of nationalism. And all too often, that is our sin too. In this book, in Jonah we really see that there are two ways of being lost. There are two ways you can be spiritually lost. You have the wayward 
terrorist nation of Assyria. That is one way to be lost. Just come out, you know, overtly wayward. But there's another way to be lost. And it's depicted in the life of Jonah. It's somebody who is doing everything right. They are quote-unquote moral. But in this story, it is the moral prophet of God who is more lost than the terrorist nation. In this little story, it is the moral prophet of God who is more lost than the pagan sailors because there's two ways to be lost. Like one is through overt waywardness and the other is through morality that says my salvation is based on how good I am. Look at how good I am. I'm fighting for all the right causes. I'm doing all the right things. And what saves me is my moral actions, my right beliefs. But that, in fact, is not what saves us. And so there's a self-righteous way of being lost that it stands out to us in this story. And here's the thing that's beautiful about the book of Jonah. God is coming for the wayward Ninevites and the prodigal prophet. God is coming for the Assyrian nation and the self-righteous Jonah. And what we celebrate each week when we come to communion is that there is no hierarchy at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are all in need of the bread and the wine. And we also celebrate that this table we come to is very big. That we are all in need of God and that God invites the terrorist and the pouting prophet. It includes all who will come to him. And at this table, God is the one who redeems and restores and nourishes all of us. So in week one, we left Jonah in the belly of the great fish. On week two, we left Jonah spit up on shore. And today, we're going to leave Jonah in his furious anger pouting state until we pick it up next week. Let's pray together as we close.